From the Ecology Prime Studios, this is Circle for Original Thinking. I am your host, Helena Aparicio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers. An open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions and we ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day. Political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America. A new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum. From the many to the one. And this time, not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. Under colonization, traditional forms of inclusive, consensus-based Native American governance were systematically replaced with Western forms of centralized, top-down leadership. Women, who once held an integral role in the political processes of many tribal nations, were pushed out or marginalized. Then LaDonna Harris came along. Working with Indian societies to restore self-determination and working with the federal government to improve the efficacy of tribal sovereignty, Harris has done much to revitalize traditional modes of tribal leadership, including for women. Harris would be the first to deflect credit away from herself because all of her work has been rooted in collaboration, and any success she has achieved is because of the kinds of people she has brought together. Her work has been a model for an inclusive, participatory model of leadership. And that model of leadership is what we will be talking about on, the, on this podcast edition of Circle for Original Thinking. In working with and between tribes and between tribes and the federal government, Harris has effectively collaborated with non-natives, gaining support for important causes, beginning with her husband, Fred R. Harris, a powerful senator from Oklahoma in the 1960s and 1970s, who was chairman of the Democratic National Committee in the late 60s and a candidate for the presidency in the 1970s. LaDonna Harris went on to recruit many non-native allies and to mentor them in Indian ways of leadership that are not only effective for Indian causes, but could be effectively utilized in mainstream politics. Harris first met political scientist and author Stephen Sachs in 1990. Sachs was invited to her home after a political gathering in Washington, D.C., and found her warmth and hospitality so intoxicating that he found it nearly impossible to leave. Reminiscent of Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains from Casablanca, that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship and also the beginning of a beautiful collaboration on a wide range of issues pertaining to to traditional Native American ways of building respectful relationships and that potential application to contemporary political and social issues. Join us as we explore Native American leadership and the art of collaboration with LaDonna Harris and Stephen Sachs. And welcome to the program, LaDonna and Stephen. How are you today? Fine. Do I stay out of the weather. <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good. And uh, uh, let me introduce the guests. Stephen Sachs first. Steve, Steve is an applied philosopher and professor emeritus of political science from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. And he's worked on American Indian and international indigenous issues since 1984, as well as other issues of participatory democracy. In 1990, he connected with LaDonna Harris, who became his friend, mentor, thinking partner, and collaborator on many of the issues he was working upon, as well as writing about those issues. With guidance from Harris as elder and editor-mentor, Sachs was the lead writer and coordinating, coordinating editor for the book Recreating the Circle, The Renewal of American Indian Self-Determination, that was published by UNM Press in 2011 and reprinted this year. This work was a holistic consideration of returning Indian nations to effective sovereignty, self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency and harmony 
and it was the forerunner to the new book, Honoring the Circle, Ongoing Learning from American Indians on Politics and Society, a collaboration with 12 different writers, including Donald Grindy, Bruce Johansson, Sally Roche Wagner, Betty Booth Donahoe, and, and many others. It's soon to be released on Waterside Publications. Sachs has also been the first coordinating editor and now the senior editor of the journal Indigenous Policy for many years uh, and has been the coordinating editor of the Nonviolent Change Journal for close to 40 years. And he was also the coordinating editor and senior editor of Workplace Democracy for about 20 years. And Sachs received his MA and PhD in political science at the University of Chicago. It was in the 1980s that he began to be pulled into certain American Indian spiritual ways and ceremonies. And this and other cross-cultural interests led to his meeting with Harris and their continuing collaboration. Now, now I'd, I'd like to introduce LaDonna Harris. And uh, uh, LaDonna has been a catalyst in the development of Indian affairs for the past five decades. Her career began in her native state of Oklahoma, where in 1965, she brought together over 500 Native Americans from across the state to address the salient issues in their communities. Out of that seminal meeting, Oklahomans for Indian Opportunity, or OIO, was formed, and Harris was elected president along with 41 directors that read like a roll call of Oklahoma tribes. And in the Johnson administration of the 1960s, Harris, working sometimes with her husband, Senator Fred Harris, and also with a group of American Indian leaders, many of them women, became a prominent presence on the national political scene. In 1968, she got President Johnson to agree to establish the National Council on Indian Opportunity, of which the main purpose was to shift American Indian politics toward representative input from Indian nations. After Johnson decided to not to run for re-election, remember all those tumultuous events in 1968, Harris continued work to work successfully with the incoming Nixon administration. She partnered with Native leaders such as Ada Deer, who's Menominee, Pat Locke from the Yankton Sioux Nation, and Alma Patterson, Tuscarora, among many others. And she and her partner succeeded in keeping Indian issues on the national political agenda from the 1960s through the 1990s. Among a long list of accomplishments, they succeeded in returning Blue Lake to the Taos Pueblo people and formed the Council of Energy Resources Tribes, or CERT, to empower tribal nations to take control of their energy resources. And she also worked with the EPA to give input to Native nations to help establish their own environmental policies. The key factor in Harris's success has always been her ability to bring together the right people and representatives from virtually all positions to talk through any given issue, help the parties understand each other's concerns, and reach consensus on a policy proposal. Her most overarching accomplishment may have been her concerted effort to develop true government-to-government relations between the tribes and federal, state, and local governments and agencies. Although much work remains to be done, Harris's efforts have had an undeniably lasting impact. Nearly every initiative that has improved relations between the Indian nations and the federal government since 1968 was previously advocated by Harris. In 1979, Ladies Home Journal named Harris as both Woman of the Year and Woman of the Decade, heralding her leadership and activism for overcoming inequalities imposed upon Native peoples. Since leaving Washington in the 1990s and moving to New Mexico, Harris's main work has been with Americans for Indian Opportunity, AIO, an organization she founded in the 1970s. While she remains president, of AEO, her daughter Laura Harris took over the position of executive director nearly 20 years ago, carrying on their mission to advance the cultural, political, and economic rights of indigenous peoples in the United States and around the world. Well, welcome to the program. And uh, um, you two wonderful people have, have long bios, but I did not want to shorten them too much because you have long um, beautiful careers, frankly. <laughs> so, so welcome to the program. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, okay, now I'm going to ask you a fun question, okay? 
So, okay. so um, I want you to imagine, imagine an alien being from the future lands here in New Mexico. Of course, that happens in New Mexico all the time. <laughs> anyway, anyway, she she gets out, all right, or or, or uh, 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 she says, "Take me." To, she doesn't say, "Take me to your leader." Instead, she says, and she doesn't even have a mouth, you know, but she telepathically asks, you know, I've been reading a lot about your leaders, but I don't understand. What is leadership? So what would you tell her? I'm going to go to you, LaDonna, first as the the elder. What would you tell her? What is leadership? It is to to solve problems, to um, to bring people together. I think leadership is bringing people together so they can solve problems, hmm. um, and also reinforce them in their identity to uh, so that they feel strong enough that they about themselves, so that they can uh, collectively really following the Indian pattern, Native American pattern uh, about how you, um, how you make decisions. And, and in following that, we've, that has been our success. And we're really proud of that. And, and particularly proud of the uh, uh, leadership program that we had and taking, taking young Indian activists in their own communities and bringing them together and, and, following the four R's, as we say, uh, and which is to follow their, the traditional way of Indian leadership that uh, Stephen has uh, published <laughs> published and helped them to have the, give them something to read, not just to hear me. Uh, but it's, um, that's been the success is, is they make their own decisions with um but we in a collective manner and that's a that's the old traditional way that that native people did that and so it was just easy to transfer it into uh present day decision making and i like all that our leaders are to me they ought to be uh, uh facilitators and empowerers they ought to help people to make decisions, help straighten out difficulties, help things to go forward, uh, and empower people yes, to feel good about themselves and be able to do things, and not necessarily to do them uh, themselves. And actually, if you have a re- really good consensus process, anybody can be a leader. I've seen this many times. The meeting gets a, a little fouled up. Somebody will step up and, and take some leadership and suggest something, and the people agree, fine. Or whoever's facilitating the meeting uh, may step down to have somebody else do it who would be better at that moment. Uh, you know, it, it, everybody can have some uh, can have a role in leadership. One of the, I'd like to add too that one of the uh, sure. uh, I looked it up in the dictionary, <laughs> and the dictionary said uh, leadership. It said that some, uh, a person who has control over others. Mm. Oh my! <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not right. And <laughs> so that gave me to look around at my my folks and how we make decisions and, and how uh, Indian people have in the past. So, and, and I tried to use other groups of Bengal um, organizations and it just never worked, never felt comfortable with it. And so when we just got to where we relied on our, our own, um, uh, but you bring the right people together and they can, they make their, the right decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and leaders uh, can also have a role. If you pick the right people uh, as leaders, as facilitators, you pick people who are in many respects virtuous, particularly for what you're trying to do at that time. So they're people who have some knowledge. They can be educators, and that's uh, that's an important role. 
And, you know, and you bring in people. Traditionally, when there's a meeting, uh, Native people, they would bring in elders just to remind people of what the values were and to respect each other. And uh, if things get a little hot, to calm down and, you know, and put yourself in everybody else's shoes. So there are a variety of leadership roles, but some of them also <laughs> are educational roles. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, uh, Ladonna, you want to add anything else, or I got a, well, another question? I, Go ahead. I, I um, it, leadership was a big discussion in Washington at the time, and so I was looking around at um, organizations like um, the unions, different unions, and and tried to look at how they organized and see if there was anything we could take from there. And I came, I would not be, it, I would felt that much of it wouldn't work. So we had, so I went back and looked at our own form of leadership and it was, um, where, because it, the leadership in other groups was to get control of the group. The leadership in the Indian community was getting everyone to uh, collaborate with on the same subject. So, so I thought that was much more, um, humane for one thing, but it also, um, distributed power, uh, in the community so that, that, uh, is more likely that, that what they're recommending would, would work for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that's really kind of where I came from. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, now last week I, I, I happened to be interviewing Someone that you you probably know, Ladonna. I'm just guessing he used to live in Bernalillo, Hakeem Bellamy, and I was also um, interviewing the songwriter Ron Crowder. And uh, Crowder wrote this, wrote a song called "This Is the Moment," and he and in his song he says, you know, one thought could change the world, but will it change our minds? Mm. And then Hakeem replied and quoted um, Gil Scott Heron. Um, you know, who was probably the original rapper, you know, before it was even called that. Um, and, uh, and he, Gil Scott Heron in his song about, uh, he, he spoke about the, the first revolution is when you change your mind. And, and, and I looked up the full quote and it's the first revolution is when you change your mind about how you look at things and see there might be another way to look at it that you have not been shown. What you see later on is the results of that. But that revolution, that change that takes place, will not be televised. You know, a lot of people don't only remember the part where he said, the revolution will not be televised. But, but this is the, this is the, this is the whole quote. I mean, there's, there, there, what you see later on is the results of that first change of the mind, but that revolution, that change that takes place will not be televised. So I want to ask you both, you know, how, or, or actually I'm going to ask LaDonna first and then I'm going to ask a slightly different question to Stephen. So I'm going to ask LaDonna, how do you reverse, you know, in your work and you've done, you know, how do you, how do you reverse the colonization of the mind in amongst native peoples? You know, it's, it's, it's a, by the time you start working, there's a, there's a lot of work to do there. So how, how did you set out to do that? Well, the experience in Oklahoma, uh, we were having uh, like 90, almost 90% dropout in schools. Mm. And we were wondering, you know, what we were trying to get to, what, that's why we organized. We didn't even have Oklahoma's for Indian opportunity at that time, but we started looking at it and then we, uh, brought in pe- different people, uh, who were both educators and, and tribal members are, are elected leaders from tribes and talked about it. And one of the things that, that we came to was that, um, uh, young Indian children were confused about their identity because if you look in the history books that there's, if we get one page or two pages in any history book, it'd be surprising. Uh, and so, and then there was the idea that people would make fun of them or tease them because they weren't up, uh, equal to some of the uh, other children in the school. And so they were dropping out of, out of school. So we, I <laughs> traveled to 
uh, carrying books with me to give to their library and just get on the stage and say, you know, I just want to and talk to the whole audience of children from that school and saying that I'm giving these books so that uh, you can learn about the Creek tribe of Oklahoma and then also that um, um, so you could ask questions of the students, you know, give them something they could communicate on. And But mostly it was the, to um, give them reassurance that other people cared about them. This came out of the University of Oklahoma, as a matter of fact. Um, they um, they were having the Southwest Center for Human Relations Studies, and they invited me, and it was always black or white, or that was the issue. And I said, well, what about Indians? And they said, what about them? And, see, and here's the university faculty members who are heading up this program. So I burst into tears. I was so... Because I, I wasn't had, I didn't have the same confidence that I have now, and I thought, well, I embarrassed myself, and so uh, they they said, well, what? A, so they said, well, good. Said, would should we have to worry about them in the government taking care of them? And I said, no, they're part of the problem, and uh, so. And I gave him examples. So we went to one of the Bureau of Indian Affairs offices and. Uh, and just to talk, well, they, there wasn't anyone there. And I said, can you imagine, like, my little grandmother coming uh, 50 miles to come see the BIA and there's nobody here that could respond to her and w- would even want to. And so they decided, well, okay. So we organized the Comanches first down in at home in my house. I had them in my house, had the meeting in my house and invited the faculty of the uh, center to come down. And so that started it. And, uh, uh, and we told that we were having the Comanches, we were having a class on, um, I don't even know what we, what we even had a name for it, but, um, how, you know, nobody had, uh, gone to a hotel, you know, how did you, you manage yourself in a hotel? So one of our term, one of our council members said, oh, I remember said I was invited to go to eat with some uh, Anglos or Thaiwas, which are Comanche for non-Indians, and said, and I said, I didn't know how to use my forks properly, you know, I don't know if I ever used them at home. And so he said, I watched everybody close, very close, and I, you know, used my napkin and and said I was so self-conscious, and so we went up to pay the bill, and I had my napkin, and I still had my napkin in my belt, and said I felt humiliated from it. Mm-hmm. Just things like that, that this is, was a grown man and a uh, tribal leader of the Comanches. and uh, But so all of that was so hurtful. So we did, uh, when we brought the uh, young ones in, we talked about... Uh, um, you know, let them talk about what was their most embarrassing moment. And it usually was some, something like that, not feeling inadequate to, um, to be where they, where they were. And so we, we did a lot of things like that, encouraged them to, uh, organize in their own, own schools and that, uh, the, then they would select, their organization would select representatives to come to, to OU, and at that time Fred was in the Senate, and I had begun to know the Secretary of um, Health and Human Services and other other people, and invited them to come down and uh, talk to our our children. And so we gained so much recognition, and then we then Bobby Kennedy became a friend. The Kennedys became friends of ours, and so we would. I was telling him what we were doing. And I said, would you come down and talk to the kids? And he said, oh, yeah. So um, the, I told, send the word out, and I told the, the Indian children that they could invite one non-Indian if, to come with them because they were, you know, everybody wanted to come see Kennedy. So they gave them some prestige in their own schools. And so they, the mixed group came to uh, and heard Bob Kennedy. And it was it was really something to have him come and t- just to talk to Indian children. So we got lots mm-hmm. of good coverage about what we were trying to accomplish. And and it also gave um, strength to the individual Indian child. 
I would, I, when I found out all of this, the negative information, I invited, uh, uh, some young people, say in the eighth or tenth grade between that, that age, and they couldn't tell me what was wrong. But the, the younger, so we invited some younger children, uh, and they could tell you because what we, what we found out in interviewing them that, um, in the lower grades, they don't, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't come to, um, they, they feel uncomfortable, but they don't know exactly how to deal with it. And the, of course, in the upper grades, they, it's when they start dropping out. And, and I, I remember myself think growing up, I was reared by my Comanche grandparents and, mm. uh, and, so that, and my mother worked in the Indian hospital, so she had, at that time, had to, to live at the hospital. And so the, my grandparents then, who were, still wore traditional clothes and grandpa, uh, couldn't speak much English, but he could curse in English quite well. <laughs> and so he, but, uh, I, I felt so comfortable and my had an aunt was about the same age as I and which it was just a very, and I was kin to everybody. That was the, that was what I, I come to know or come to think anyway, that uh, our, my great grandmother had all these children and so it gave a whole bunch of people. So I felt like I was kin to everyone and I went to school for the first grade and booking, uh, the first book we had was Dick and Jane. Do you remember Dick and Jane? Oh, his, yeah. His mother, father, <laughs> a boy and girl, a cat yeah. and a dog. And it says, uh, and this is what a family should look like. Well, I didn't look like any of that. And I went home and cried my eyes out. Because <laughs> I, I felt so detached mm. from from what I was exposed to. And um, so I finally overcame with it because way grandmother would tell things and said, oh, you said, listen and learn and you'll know how, what to do because I felt so uncomfortable. But that was my starting in public schools. And I don't think it has proved because we're still not in the textbooks any place of any consequence. So that they, though we have now, you know, Indian studies, uh, not so much Indian studies, but uh, what during the civil rights movement, they, well, we have black studies, Indian studies and women's studies. And I said, you have to be, um, you have to be in love with an Indian to go to one of those classes. Because <laughs> so it, it wasn't reaching, it, it didn't reach out for the general student. So that was, I don't know, what, what was the original question? I'm <laughs> how do you decolonize the mind? I mean, really, how do you reverse and, the colonization of the mind? Well, you're, like, you're getting at it. I, but, well, yeah. And that's what the kids, <clears throat> excuse me. And that's what the kids got out of coming to OU. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, well, that's kind of how we saw that if you have them a sense of identity that they could be proud of, then they're going to make it. And so we changed the dropout rate from, um, dropout rate from, uh, 75 to 35 in the, um, by our efforts of talking to the students and bringing them into OU give them meet the governor and then you know people like um uh gardner who was uh secretary of um uh health and human services and the johnson camp uh johnson times so so we got to to they got to see somebody that they read about and heard about and and that uh they were very special to get to come to see that. So it was, it was really uh, encouraging uh, children in their own, uh, the, the beauty of their own uh, tribal identity. Wonderful, wonderful. When you were talking about the family not looking like, you know, the Dick and Jane family didn't look like the Indian family, it reminds me of something I think I heard Vine Deloria Jr. say once that, uh, you know, and he was trying to explain that the, that the American Indian family had, you know, a mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, maybe great grandfather, maybe aunts, uncles, and then an anthropologist. Yes, the family did. The family did look a little, yeah, a little bit, right. a little different. But anyway, uh, 
Stephen, I want to ask you now, you know, I mean, how, how, how do you work with Western people um, who, you know, who have, have you ever spoken to them about their minds being colonized also before they ever were the colonizer They've colonized their own mind. Have you have you broached that subject with people? I haven't taken it up in that way. I've uh-huh. tried to talk to people about, uh, and actually it goes back to my own experience of having a variety of experiences and getting to know different people in different ways. And I often use that uh, in my teaching. I mean, I had a, actually I once did teach an anthropology class. Mm-hmm. So we uh, with a variety of folks. So we had. Uh, we, we were focusing on three three groups. Well, some folks in Macedonia, villagers who I'd spent some time with. Uh, well, we had some good materials on the Cheyenne, so we used those. And then it was the people in the class. What do you do about these things? And start getting people to share about that. Mm-hmm. And I think actually the best class I have ever wrote, we would, we used called it taking the case into the classroom. I teamed up with somebody, it was a course on the poverty program in Indianapolis where I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we teamed up with a community organizer, uh, on one of the neighborhood associations. And, uh, by the third year running that class, some of the people in the organization were taking the class so they might learn something, uh, you know, broader uh, other ideas. To go to meetings in the community when they got their health center and needed people to, to uh, uh, paint it, some of the students went down and did that. Uh, they need, the health center needed somebody who knew something about health uh, as a, uh, uh, not a, a, what do you call it? A sec- not a secretary, uh, anyway, to greet people coming in and organize things. And so we had an allied health student who needed a job and all of that. And the interesting thing is it turned out, you know, the John Birch Society was founded in Indianapolis and the secretary of the John mm. Birch Society took the course. And I figured, oh, well, you know, ideologically, he's not going to like a lot of this stuff. But unless you, the wrong word was used, was sort of set off a tape, you got into all of this and could see other people's views and, you know, was as much into seeing what was going on as everyone else. And if Interesting. You look, yeah, if you look now, actually, uh, some of the changes that have taken place, I mean, one of them, the, the change in the United States on LBT issues, uh, you know, there's so many people who, uh, who more and more as it's come out, people realize they know somebody or has someone in their family who's a good person and so forth. Mm. And the people began really, hey, these folks are all right. Uh, it began to change their view. And all of a sudden, it seemed like there was suddenly a tremendous shift. But it actually had taken place over time as more and more got out, more and more people came out. Uh, and uh, other people realized that, hey, these folks are all right. And then you got mm. a generation who was brought up with this, didn't have the old view because that wasn't their experience, and that helped change it. Wow. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And uh, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I just want to say one thing, and then, you know, have you, uh, I don't know if yeah. you two have read the uh, book um, that by Eli Saslow called Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a White Nationalist. It's quite a good book and a little bit like what you were saying, Stephen. You know, this, this guy, Derek Black, who was David Duke's godson and was going, was being groomed to be the head of the KKK. Um, he went to college and these people befriend, these people befriended him and they didn't actually judge him for some reason and they just became his friends and some of it was like a, a Jewish woman, a black man, something, you know, and, and he became friends with them and gradually, very slowly, his white nationalism started to have some, uh, holes in it until he, the very last thing that he held on to was the idea that, that, uh, from his point of view, that there was some kind of persecution of white beliefs or something, but, um, but, 
but eventually he he renounced the entire thing. So yeah, it's possible somehow. That's really fascinating when you were talking about your student from the John Birch Society. Anyway, did you want to comment on that, LaDonna? Um, I was going to comment on um, about being grounded in your cultural identity, because when one of the uh, early stages of um, we decided to bring in Indian children there in Lawton to just you know that we're there in close to well where I live at the time, and so they came in and we we asked the older ones that were in junior high, and they couldn't tell you. Um, and but uh, when then we got somebody who had graduated, and they said, "I can tell you what's wrong." Said uh, uh, the teachers, the teachers don't like us, and mm. just went through this whole whole uh, horrible sounding um, that they're prejudiced, and they call us chief, and uh, they're you know, meaning thinking they're calling us saying something that would be in. So one of the things that we did was saying, um, created the uh, four R's, what we call the four R's, is relationship, responsibility, reciprocal, and redistribution. Those were those were Indian values, and that how mm. did and how do you uh, uh, live them out, and have how do you interpret each of those R's, and both in your life life and in your relationship to your tribe and then to other to American society. So that it gave them a sense of, of belonging to something bigger than themselves and to feel the richness of of uh, the four R's. So we we use that both with um, um helping young people but we also used it in our leadership program where we had um brought in young people and um who who we call leaders and we started with the four R's and that was that if they they could repeat them to for us <laughs> to, these were adults these were young adults and uh, so it it really had an impression that it really they took it, it um, they used it for themselves and they used it with others when they were trying to say sell the the um, School board, but they, but once back to the teacher again, when the children were saying that, I just found it hard that, to believe that somebody who was a teacher would act the way that the young kids were telling me, and so we said, well, let's have a. I got the university that that uh, to have a invite some teachers in and have a uh, Indian child and a teacher. Uh, the uh, Indian would be the teacher, and the uh, teacher would be an Indian, and so they started off, and they were in tears. The teacher was in tears. She said, "Am I really like that?" Because she had uh, the the young Indian had humiliated her, um, mm. and she they never realized that they were doing what they were doing that was so damaging to the children. So we had to stop it, and everybody had a good cry and loved on each other, and things mm. did improve somewhat. But it was still, 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 they were crippled by some of their experiences. Mm. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, wow, I could, I, I could just feel the, you know, the the sensitivity that Stephen's spoken about in the way that you've gone about your. Your work and the way that you do lead, and it's just it's coming through, and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, it's uh, you know I, I was thinking about uh, one thing I want to ask uh, uh, both of you. Uh, um, you know, uh, you're both you know you're you got a few years on me. You know, I mean, I was born in 1955, so I was I was around in the 1960s. But but I was still, you know, kind of a puppy. I was still learning the ways of the world. But there was obviously a lot going on, you know, in the 1960s. I remember, you know, I mean, my my mother was a great fan of John Kennedy. And I said, sure, I was only uh, eight years old when he was assassinated. But I do remember where I was and exactly my mom crying. And it was a very interesting time, you know. And, uh, and then Lyndon Johnson becomes the president. And, and LaDonna, you had a most 
uh, unusual but very successful working relationship with Lyndon Johnson. Um, and, uh, and, and Lyndon Johnson did carry on, um, to the chagrin of the Southern Democrats. He carried on the, the civil rights proposals of John Kennedy. Um, and that really changed everything. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, with, with events that are happening today, you know, with Black Lives Matter being the largest gathering um, in the world, it only surpassed the Women's March and the Me Too movement, which were then, just three and a half years ago, the largest movement in the world. So with those, with civil rights being prominently um, 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 present today, how does your experience from the 1960s connect with today? And do you think that what's happening for today, how is it the same and how is it different from that time? Well, um, <laughs> I had a babysitter who was a, a young African-American student in a segregated school. And I knew the uh, knew her father, so I asked if she would babysit for me because I was always running around campaigning or doing something. And so I saw them standing in line picketing uh, the one of the theaters um, in town. So as soon as she came to work one day, I asked her, said, what were you, what was happening? Said, well, we have to sit in the balcony. We can't sit in, in the lower sex, sex. And this was 60s. And uh, I said, my goodness. And so I called a friend and she came over and then I had this, this wonderful um, um, older woman who would, who, Kind of liked me, and so she would send, she would uh, uh, bring newspaper or magazine articles and put them in my screen door, so she wanted things she wanted me to read. So uh, some of the information that she gave me, we we did this, and we so we started a group of um, uh, African Americans and and uh, Anglo's. And, I guess in Indians too, mm-hmm. um, in Lawton, Oklahoma. So we integrated the, the, uh, all the housing and everything in town. And, uh, uh, <laughs> Fred, and the same time, uh, Fred was doing, working with the mayor and they were doing meeting, trying to have, decide what to do. But we would talk about going to the individual restaurant who had, segregation and mm. talk to them directly so we two just two people would know maybe somebody who knew actually knew the restaurant owner and uh and then the the mayor had this committee which fred was on but they just weren't getting anywhere and what we did was we went to the restaurant owners and said you know this is happening and why don't we you know why don't we change because we have a military base out here and uh so everybody changed, but one woman who had a, a, a restaurant who really serviced the servicemen from Fort Sill, and they were open at night. And so we had, uh, by the time we had gotten so big and so effective, the uh, Fort Sill had given had uh, asked one of the the uh, military people to come and sit in with our group. And so they did. And so he went to, he, he was sitting and then found out this was the holdout. And so he went over, this, uh, uh lieutenant went over and said, uh, uh, I'm hearing you're not serving uh, soldiers. And so, oh no, I don't have, I don't need to bother with them. She said, well, we're putting your restaurant, uh, off limits. And that she changed her mind very quickly mm-hmm. after that. So we integrated, that was our last holdout and we integrated the whole city of Lawton in both in restaurants, housing, everything else. And it just kind of came and just bl- blossomed and everything. So it was so successful. Um, that, that first experience of seeing, seeing what you're, what you, and I don't think people really want to be. But some way we've ingrained, particularly Oklahoma and Eastern Oklahoma is real, real ugly about their race relations. Um, but it was, but we did have, uh, we had fun actually. And nobody could be, um, be the head person so that everybody had to share in the uh, hosting it 
and uh, and then also be the chair, and so that everybody had the experience of being a leader in the in the group. We, so we didn't have wouldn't be any question of control. So we just called ourselves the group, <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. when we were successful in the house uh, in the restaurants, then the housing just did it kind of did it on its own. And so I got, so I've got my Oklahoma, my lot in Oklahoma, um, women told the National Black Women's Organization and I was chosen as a person of the year. Mm. So, so that was a real wonderful, the, the whole experience was wonderful and fun. We laughed at ourselves too when we would make mistakes or laugh at one of our colleagues about it. So it wasn't hard to do. It was just, it was, it was really wonder. It was a wonderful experience to see that you could make that kind of difference too. Mm, Excellent. And Steve, so I I want you to comment also on, on your thoughts about how the sixties might be, might be uh, similar to today, but uh, while you're doing that, I, I, I'd like you to also bring in, you know, address some of how you got got to collaborate with LaDonna and how and, how, and what that's meant to you in your life. Well, the two separate questions. The first, yes, one is, yes, you know, because if you take the long, you know, LaDonna's given us very much the personal view, and the personal level is always going on. As native people say, and a lot of others now, and more and more Western societies recognizing that everything is connected. Uh, systems theory came into political science about the time I was beginning to, about the time I was studying in the 60s. And, you know, all of, everything is a system of everything interacting in systems with semi-independence. And mm. uh, you know, somebody, and, uh, and someone who's stuck in one system sees one way and they get outside it a little. And as in the case you gave, uh, then begins to change their mind because of other interactions, depending how those take place and who they are, their own nature and so forth. Uh, and there's a long set of, of several different kinds of movements, some structural, some uh, more on the intellectual level, maybe spiritual level, uh, have been going on for a long time where we, on the one hand, there's been a move more towards indigenous ways of thinking since late 19th century. Very slowly, uh, we've had more opening up in many ways. And things come to a head at various times, and they did in certain ways at the 60s, and a whole bunch of advances were made, and then there was a reaction. I mean, we've got things going back and forth. And Mm -hmm. we at a certain level, and some of that was continuing. Meanwhile, below the surface, a lot of these changes were going on, all kinds of things, uh, not isn't time to explain, uh, that had effects on, for instance, on Indians and on other groups. Well, the civil rights movement uh, affected uh, everybody's civil rights. And, you know, all the movements inter- have interacted with each other. And so people became more interested in Indians, for example, and mm-hmm. uh, for various reasons. And, well, I've got more of that thinking in into the culture and so forth. Well, other spiritual activity for other reasons uh, began to change. But at the same time, we've had more concentration of wealth. And so we've got some class separation beginning and yet some people who don't mm-hmm. who are so separate they don't relate to others and, and well anymore, but you got a lot of power in their money. Uh and uh we've also all the the breath the change also causes fear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and in the 60s too, and it led to some of the reaction in the seventies. Mm. And we're getting that more now. But worldwide, there's been more and more of a movement for change, as you've said in your book. Mm. Uh, the new is trying to be born, and it's very difficult when you get this polarization. We're more polarized now than we were before. But mm. there's more force for change. We wait to see how it uh, comes out. And a lot of the changes now are being built on the changes that were made earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I, the only thing I can say is I'm optimistic because a lot of the things have, have gone far enough and enough people are involved. So a lot of the resistance to the change <laughs> that is pulling, trying to pull power plays by and large is not uh, working. Uh, you know, I mean, Trump uh, uh, tries to bring in troops. No, the army won't have anything to do with that and putting people down. And he sends uh, uh, sends uh, 
uh, Homeland Security uh, tough guys to try to put things down in Portland. And most people, it depends who, different people have different views. And it also depends how the politicians and everybody else plays it up. But most people saw that made things worse. This was not effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so forth. And the hope is that, that the more the, rea- uh, the reaction takes place, the more it stimulates people to bring change towards the better, at least from somebody who believes that's where we want to go. Very, now, very good. Now, you brought up this fellow. I've, I've never heard of him. Who was that? Uh, Trump? Who's it? Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of him. Okay, but anyway, uh, uh, but, but, uh, 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 you know, I, I like it, you know, in the, in the remaining time that we have, I, I, uh, I, I'd like you to speak about, um, how your own collaboration has, has, uh, uh, enriched each other. So I don't know who wants to go first, but, uh, uh, whatever. Stephen, you want to go first? Yeah. I yeah. will. Well, it's okay. been fantastic because I had, had a long interest, intercultural interest, in, including some uh, indigenous interests, uh, which got occasionally into my classes and so forth. Uh, well, in my spiritual life, it opened up anyway, and I got pulled into Indian ways uh, along the line. It was just one of those interesting stories there isn't time to tell. And then that opened me up to looking more at these issues and seeing a lot of the stuff on participatory democracy I was working with uh, was simply old tribal ways. And mm. I was working on a project, well, anyway, and you mentioned there was a meeting in, in D.C. and my co-chair knew LaDonna uh, and uh, put us in touch and LaDonna knew who might be able to help us get a place in D.C. for that session. Uh, and she said, come to her house afterwards. And, you know, by that time I knew some, but not a lot. I mean, how much do I know now? It's a lot more, mm. but it still isn't a lot. Uh, and there was just so much warmth, as you already read. And there mm. I almost physically couldn't walk out the door to go catch my airplane. Mm. And LaDonna, you know, well, here's a political scientist. We're hitting it off. We need to change the, the textbooks. You know, in native ways, you, you look at things. Who might, you know, you never know who might be a good ally. You want to be on good terms with everybody and as much as possible. So anyway, that set it up. And uh, early on, a lot of these issues, I didn't know that much. I'd come to ask LaDonna, well, try reading this. And, uh, oh, well, there's an archive here you should look at. And then she'd look at the paper and suggest this and that, you know, and, uh, and, uh, so, and I was doing some things directly with her and, and a lot of other things. I spent time uh, on the Ute Reservation where I had connections and with other folks. So I was being indigenized in many ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, LaDonna uh, and AIO and other family paid, played a, a huge role in this interaction, really mm-hmm. is tremendous. And, you know, we're family. You know, in, in, the, in Albuquerque, I'm captured Comanche. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful, beautiful, and uh-huh. and, uh, and and uh, Ladonna, share with us a little bit. Well, mostly that I've never written anything because I can't spell. I'm dyslexic, <laughs> and so Stephen coming and putting my words in on paper, or not just my words, but our ideas, our collective ideas on on paper. Um, Really, he just became so valuable as a friend. Um, and I don't know, we just always run into each other. Whatever, if we go off and do something else, we'd both find, we'd both find each other's tracks. We were either involved, we'd get involved in it if we, if we weren't invited. Um, but it, it's been a wonderful relationship. And I was going to tell you one story that I think you might be interested in that the, um, uh, young people would come to Washington and they would have a, um, they were selected from their communities to, to come to Washington and maybe get involved with, with the national government. So we, again, I don't know why I started this, but to have people like that to come to our house and have a little reception for them and just, and I paid attention to them and, um, kind of mothered them, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, one of the, she, one of the people that, uh, uh, 
was got married. I went to her wedding, and they got a house close to us in McLean. And then she, darn her, she wasn't working for Nixon White House. Mm-hmm. And so she said, uh, so when the Taos Blue Lake question mm-hmm. came up, uh, she, she we, they, the Taos people came to Fred and, and I asked him to help them on the legislature because they couldn't get it out of the committee. And then the, uh, but we needed it to be bipartisan and not just Democrats. So, uh, um, I called Bobby and said, I said, can you set me up with the president Nixon? Uh, ooh, Fred, he hated Fred. And so, and I, I didn't know that at the time, but I only found out afterwards. But, uh, so I'm, I met with him and told him what the issues were that this was the land of the Taos people and their story of origin that they came from that lake and uh, how important it was. So he said, okay. And he called one of his staff and in and said, go with Mrs. Harris and find out what we need to do. And so he came over and he said, I don't know what to think. Said I went to see the president and met Ms. Harris and there I was and Senator Red Harris's office. Said I didn't, I didn't think I would ever go there. And so uh, he supported the Taos Blue Lake and the and it passed. It was very difficult because the senator from New Mexico was against it. Oh, yeah. So he he had to get it out of out of um, out of the committee. Fred was hard, and he walked by Fred once and he said, "Fred, I don't mess with your Indians in Oklahoma, and you mess with mine." Peace. Fred said, "Well, Senator, they're not your Indians." <laughs> <laughs> so that was a kind of thing, and it was it was. Oh, it was scary too because this was their, this was their very religious. They had all kinds of implications that what this lake meant to them. And so we got all these real strange people working together, but it was, it was wonderful. And Nixon was very proud and had us over at the White House for signing in the legislation. And so- I love that story. <laughs> and I, I've, I've been blessed to, to, uh, be in Taos a lot. I mean, we had, we had, uh, we had to sell it recently, but my wife and I had bought a little, uh, house in Taos and I used to oh. go, there. I went there to write, you know, and, oh. and what a, what a, Aren't you know, what I, what I love about Taos is the extra dimension. You know, all of New Mexico has those wide open mesas and they have the, um, um, and the mountains, but Taos also has that, you know, the Rio Grande Gorge where, where, where that goes deep in a mother earth and there's that extra dimension and there's something, something very soulful, powerful about that land up there. And certainly the blue lake, I know. Thank you so much. Thank you on behalf of everybody of, of uh, New Mexico and really all people for that work that was done to return blue lake to the Taos Pueblo Indians where it belongs. I mean, where they, you know, and, and to have that fresh, clean water coming down. De- oh, Gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, uh, you can't see it. It's an audio podcast, but, um, um, um I, I got some cornmeal I'm spraying to say thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, so my, my friends were, we're, we're, we're near the, the end, but if there's any last second, uh, uh, thoughts you want to share or, or, or plans for the future because I, uh, um, this is, this is the time. This is the time. We've got just a couple minutes. So I just, so I just want to say that our leadership, our leadership program, uh, the ambassadors, we call them ambassadors from these tri- the tribes and we use the four R's as the basis for how we organized and how we, and how we dealt with issues that uh, they they had issues of their own tribe as well as collective issues, and uh, so it, it worked with them, and we were very pleased. Um, that's the only thing I'd like to add that how proud we were of the um, ambassadors program, and how well they're all thought of that went through that program. The young adults. Thank you. And how do our listeners find out more about Americans for Indian Opportunity? They they go to the website or. Or these days they can just Google, and the uh, the magic Google God will take them there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
AIO America's AIO.org if they want to. AIO.org. Okay. And before I turn it over to to, to you, Stephen, I I just want to thank you too. I mean, thank you for for uh, our friendship and and for introducing me to some wonderful people that uh, resources as well. Um, because of the work, you know, that he did together with you, LaDonna, and, and and other people he became involved in. I mean, he really has done a lot of work in, in uh, you know, uh, getting Americans to see this country in a different way and to see that, that how strong an influence Native America had on the founding values of this nation – so thank you for that. I mean, that, that really helped me and it still needs to be said more and more because even with all, even in the last 25 years with books coming out that, have, that speak about the influence of Native America on the founding of the nation, still, I know because the book I just wrote, Original Politics, the most common remark people give me is, I had no idea. Well, Glenn, one of the other <laughs> things that we've, uh, that Laura and I've started are it happened to us is that people coming and asking us to do, we call it Indian 101 to mm. make a presentation because the people here in this, who are in the state government are churches. We've done churches. We've done, um, um, committees, um, what is foundations, foundations and, uh, everyone and just give them a history and it, it, uh, Laura is a great way she presents it so that, um, they have a whole different, they can almost get it all in a 30 minute presentation because of the way she's organized it. So that's awesome. what we're on right now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, and, uh, uh, Stephen, do you have any last closing remarks well, you'd like uh, to say? Uh, it's been a pleasure working with you as well as with LaDonna and, you know, Unless, if you know stuff, it doesn't do any good unless you help get it around to other people. You're doing a lot of that with your book on original politics, and I hope our four volumes will help do that. And I'm just hoping that, you know, we have to get past this immediate uh, polarization and that we can really begin to get back to talking to each other and hearing each other's stories and, and be, really relate well. With well, it. thank you. Thank you. I would we'll, say how we, much I appreciate Stephen because he he takes the the thoughts and puts it in writing that I can't do. So he makes a great contribution to me and to the Indian community. Thank and you. It's a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's, that's wonderful. And and uh, I I want to I, I I wonder if Laura, if you want to say anything about AIO before we go. You go yeah. off because I just, yeah. I, I yeah. just, uh, Laura Harris, who's the, 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 and we're going to have to bring you back for a fuller interview, but I'd like to give you just a moment to say thank you, please. Well, I've been taught well by, um, Steve Sachs and LaDonna Harris, that's for sure. And Steve really is, um, one of our best Comanche captives, um, because he contributes so much to AIO's thinking and, um, and, and then records, uh, all these, uh, ideas and things that, uh, LaDonna's accomplished and, and gets behind the kind of the science of it and the universality, uh, of these core cultural values and the need for effective, uh, leaders to be grounded in their cultural identity is very universal as well. So um, anytime we can share this information uh, and, and, and share this uh, indigenous values-based approach to community organizing and leadership development, we like to do it. So thank you, Glenn. Oh, thank you so much. This has been just such a pleasure. And, uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, LaDonna. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Laura, for coming in just now. And, uh, uh do look for, you know, they're, they're singing the praises of, of Stephen. So you can look for his new book, Honoring the Circle, Ongoing Learning from American Indians on Politics and Society, which was 12 writers in collaboration, which is what we're talking about today. So that will be coming out soon on Waterside Publications.
Thank you so much. This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, BizGenics, and the Ecology Prime Media Channel, native flute music by Orlando Secretaro. From the Pathways CD, the Liberty Song is by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. Post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. For more information, or for that matter, you can go volunteer. We need volunteers. Go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us. And you can also find and purchase my books, Original Thinking and Original Politics, there. Thank you very much for listening. And until next week, um, blessings to all. Thank you. Thank you, LaDonna. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Laura. Just beautiful. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Sweet liberty.